welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back again this week covering the second book of The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And for anyone who is new to our podcast, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends and we read and reread YA literature from our adolescence and we share books with each other. So we alternate or try to frequently alternate between series that one of us has read and the other hasn't. And we're currently on my turn to reread. I honestly don't know how many times I've read this series, but it's probably close to 15 times, and Asia is reading for the first time. Really? 15 times? I mean, yeah. Like, (laughs) maybe it's more like 10, but like, yeah, I think so. Like, at least (gasps) once a year for close to every year I could read. Okay. Good for you. (laughs) So... I don't think I have any series that I would read that many times. That's well, a lot. I know I've read Harry Potter at least that many times, but other than that, I don't think there's anything I've read that many times. Well, so then you definitely have to have parts memorized at that point. I mean, yeah. So anyway, as the new person, I'm trying to reserve judgment until after we finish. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and give us a quick plot summary of this book. So the four Pevensey, is that right? Yeah. Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, stumble their way into the land of Narnia, which is frozen in eternal winter. Edmund betrays his siblings as they set out to meet Aslan, the great lion of Narnia, and they decide to overthrow the white witch, Jadis, and end the winter. Aslan sacrifices himself for Edmund's treachery and frees all of the witch's prisoners. Meanwhile, Peter leads a battle against Jadis and is ultimately victorious. The four siblings then rule as kings and queens together for about 15 years in what is considered Narnia's golden age. Then, one day, they are hunting and they find themselves walking back through the wardrobe and re-entering our world at the exact time they left back to being children. Which, when you think about that, That doesn't make any sense for, like, time-wise, but we can talk about that later. So for my impression of the book, so for this book, I actually remembered most of the plot from seeing the movie. I think I've seen it maybe once or twice, but, like, I was imagining, like, scenes of the movie as I was reading it. But as far as how I felt about the story, it just felt really childish and, like, made for kids. And then also, on top of that, the Christian imagery felt very heavy-handed to me but obviously like we said I'm an adult so like this wasn't written for me so maybe as a child you wouldn't pick up on it as much and obviously you wouldn't see it as childish because you are a child so I wouldn't necessarily say that I disliked the book but I just wasn't that interested because it just didn't feel like I could really relate to it or connect to it but I like I generally liked the characters I guess but I feel like we just didn't get that much with them so that was just my first impression right off the bat No, I definitely agree. Like, for me, the nostalgia, my impression is that the nostalgia is absolutely carrying me through. But I agree that it's it's so clearly written for a a younger audience. Like, even just, like, how short the book is. Like, we don't get a lot of description. We don't get a lot of 
I'm not saying like filler because that's not right the word, but we don't get a lot of things that are not necessary to the plot. Like basically everything happens and that's kind of all we get. We don't get a lot of kind of like world enriching. I don't mean world building and like setting up the rules of the world. Like we don't get a lot of like they're just traveling through Narnia and they're seeing like creatures. It's like they're traveling. It stops snowing. Therefore, because it stops snowing, the carriage can't run anymore and they make it to Stonehaven. Like everything is directly related to the plot, which just feels like it's definitely for a younger audience. Yeah. I also, I just forget every time how much I love the names Edmund and Lucy. I think they're so cute. Yeah. Something else, though, that I think takes me out of the story is, which I felt this way in other books, but I feel like I feel it more strongly now because I'm also just not that interested in the story to start with. But there's like a narrator and the narrator like talks directly to the reader, which for me personally, that feels like a very like it's like a sign that the book is made for children. And for me, at least, like I feel like it takes me out of the story when like which that happened in the last series in the Skinjacker trilogy, too. But I feel like here, I feel like we get a little bit more of that. But I don't know if that's just, I'm noticing it more because I'm just not enjoying it as much. And I'm not having something like the nostalgia to carry me through the series. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I, I don't necessarily think it screams younger to me because I read plenty of adult books where stuff like that happens too. But I, I do agree that it takes me out of the story. I don't like it in any setting when, like, the narrator speaks to the reader like I, that's just i agree that's a stylistically not something i cared for mm-hmm. so but i'll try to think about like because that has been something that we've talked about before on the podcast that is it is definitely a hallmark of a lot of the books reread in the show so next time we're reading an adult book not adult like inappropriate but adult and like for <laughs> adults i'll try and it happens i'll try to like make a note of it so we can talk about it on the podcast so diving into the pop plot, like I said, we get into action pretty quickly. Like right away, Lucy finds her way through the wardrobe into Narnia and very, very quickly meets Mr. Tumnus. And he's a fawn, so that's half human and half goat. Yeah, just like Grover from our first series. And Lucy eats sardines on toast with him, which I just had to note that that sounds absolutely disgusting. No offense to anybody who, you know, enjoys that delicacy, I guess, but... I don't know how that could be good. Yeah, that doesn't sound good to me at all. Also, since you mentioned this last week, I tried to pay attention to it because as we noticed last week, I just kind of like rolls off me. But he literally starts with, are you a daughter of Eve? It is constantly brought up. Like, Yeah, it's said a lot. It's said all the time. And we find out by the end of the book that Narnia is never right. Okay, this is a quote. It's never right unless it's ruled by a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. See, things are memorized. And again, it just feels a little weird considering there aren't any humans in Narnia during this story and there are very few in the rest of the stories that they have to be ruled by people. Yeah, it just seems like, again, like a made-up rule, which is fine, I guess, but... I don't know, it just screams... It like I don't know, it is kind of like you'd be like... like you're saying, like, it's a world full of non-people. Why do why do ha- people from, like, not Narnia have to come in and rule? Like, why do outsiders have to come in and rule? We'll talk about that a little more, about, like, the function of Narnia near the end of the series. But, yes, 
that is that is going to be an ongoing question that I think that we can discuss. And then we also get this next, which I remember when I watched the movie thinking how dumb Edmund was to trust this scary looking queen. But I guess, you know, it's on theme for stupid boys getting everyone else into trouble with their actions. Yeah. And also in the movie, the queen is played by Tilda Swinton and she is terrifying. Like she does not look, she's so scary. Like she does not look nice. Like I would not trust her at all in the movie. And they made her like into such a big character. She's in all the movies, even though she's not really relevant. But anyway, that's, that's a, we can watch the movies thing. But even in the book, she's not nice. She literally says to him, I see you are an idiot. Like, if someone said that to me, like a complete stranger, I don't think I would be like, let me get up in your, let me get up in your sleigh. You know? Like. Yeah, definitely not. And I wrote down, I was like, I bet Asia hates Edmund for whining as much as he does and selling out his siblings. I would say that I hated him because, again, since I knew it was going to happen, I wasn't, like, caught off guard. I was, I was just honestly like indifferent. Yeah. Indifferent. Okay, fair enough. So this feels like a good time to ask, why does the wardrobe only open to Narnia sometimes? Because we get in the beginning, Lucy is the first one to go into Narnia. She meets Mr. Tumnus and then she comes back and she tells the other three about it and they don't believe her and they even go to the wardrobe to check. But when they go to check, the wardrobe is just a normal wardrobe. And then on a different day, she ends up, Lucy stumbles in, and then Edmund actually follows her and stumbles in as well. And then finally, all the four of them eventually do, like, go in together when they're hiding in the wardrobe. So I was just like, is there, like, a specific time that this, like, portal opens, or it's just completely random? So it's definitely not a specific time, but I also don't think it's random. I guess we can kind of talk about this. When my parents first, like, read these books to me, and then also, like, if you read anything about the books, they're very much about teaching people to be good people. It's a lot, I mean, again, teaching people to be good Christians, but in a larger sense, teaching children to... It's a difference. Teaching children to be good children. Now, the Pevensey kids aren't, like, unpleasant, per se, but, like, Diggory and Polly are pretty unpleasant children. We didn't really talk about it. Because they're kind of, well, Diggory's unpleasant because he's depressed. But, you know, mental health was not something that they thought existed in the 1950s. So, but you'll see with a couple of the other children that we're going to meet that they're not very nice people until they go to Narnia. Until they go and learn some freaking humility. And the Pevensies, well, particularly Edmund, is a bad person. Like, he's a little bit of a brat. And he has to go... What I was always, what I was told about the books and what I've read about them is that going to Narnia teaches these children to be better people. And so it's all kind of like orchestrated by Aslan, a.k.a. God. And like it's God teaching them to be better people. And so it's not random that they get in. It's all orchestrated in order to make them into better people. Does that make sense? I guess. But like, like for example, Edmund being able to get in and then like he chooses to lie about it afterwards, that ends up putting him 
at this place where he is like at rock bottom and he chooses the wrong thing and then he learns and grows from it. And like Lucy is like this perfect example of like a model Christian because she believes flat out, like no problem, has no problem believing it, doesn't doubt herself, doesn't doubt her conviction once. Like she's like what a true, I mean, honestly, in any religion, what any religion wants is a believer who (laughs) believes without proof because that's like the true sign of belief is that you don't need proof to believe in it. And then you... But she believes with proof because she believes when she goes into Narnia. I know, but when everyone starts calling her crazy, she still believes it. Because she experienced it. Yeah, but like if you were a child and you experienced that, you and everyone's like, you're crazy, you might quite realist, reasonably be like, maybe it was just a dream. But again, it's but also, it's a metaphor. To me, like, but if you actually experience something... You should be able to hold on to that. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm not getting the idea of that to me doesn't relate to being a believer without proof because she did get proof just because no one else believed her. She got proof for herself. So she's a strong believer and doesn't let anyone else sway her beliefs. But I wouldn't say that that's believing without proof. Well, sure. Okay. I'll take that. That's fine. That's just how I would feel about it. But my point is like, they're kind of, they're, that's kind of what it's about. But I, I think I kind of get what you're saying. Kind of like you only go into Narnia like when you need it. Or and like that's going to relate to the ending. Like when it's your time. Like That's going to relate to the end of they can't yeah, go so like whenever for they Lucy, want. Like it's when they need to yeah. go. When they need to. Yeah, it's when they need to. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. We'll talk about it more in the next books. Particularly it'll be a theme in Prince Caspian. And it'll be a theme in The Silver mm-hmm. Chair. But again, it'll be in all of them kind of. So Edmund betrays them. He goes to the witch, and that was, like, pretty awful. Like, obviously. Again, not a surprise if you've seen the movie, but he's my favorite Pevensey child, and you'll see why. But I always forget that he's, like, such a brat at the beginning. But I know that's, like, his character arc. But, like, wow, he sucks so much. I mean, I guess that makes sense, like, if you're saying... He's your favorite character because at this point, he's the character with the most room for growth. And I feel like usually when you're reading, like, one of the best parts about a story is the character's development. And so, like, at this point, like, everybody else is kind of good. Like, I guess they can get better. But, like, at this point, like you said, Edmund reaches rock bottom and he on- his only way is up. I mean, it's just like in the last series how your favorite character was Mikey because at that point, I mean, obviously Mary was the worst character, but... She never grew, but Mikey grew. So obviously, like, again, you're going to latch onto that character element. So I could see why he would become your favorite character. Obviously, he's not mine in this particular moment, but I could see why. But I had wrote down because the witch gives him Turkish delights. And I'm like, those Turkish delights must have been seriously addicting because Edmund immediately sells out all of his siblings, even when he recognizes deep down that the White Witch is not good, like she is not a good person. And then when they get to her castle, he vandalizes a lion statue there, which I don't know if he's made the connection that these are actual people that she's turned to stone. So he's vandalizing a person, and he's kind of maybe thinking it's Aslan, which is definitely not doing him any favors for making him look like a good character when Aslan is literally supposed to represent, like, God, and he's, you know, vandalizing that. So 
definitely I could see where like he is the character with the most like room for the most growth. For sure. Also, like he's like, I mean, maybe this is also me projecting, but he's also described as kind of looking like me. Like he's the one who has dark hair. Like Peter's supposed to be blonde, if I remember correctly. Also, like he's definitely in the movie, he's definitely the cutest of the children. Lucy is super cute too, but the two of them are just they're just so cute. But yes, you're you're also right. More intellectually, I like that he has room for character growth. <laughs> so this is, and we're going to get some karma because of this. So the other three siblings get gifts from Father Christmas. Peter gets a sword and a shield. Susan gets a bow and arrows and an ivory horn that will always bring help when needed. And Lucy gets a diamond bottle with a healing cordial and a dagger. And I'm going to track this time. I've never done it before, but I want to track how many times in the series it's mentioned that Edmund doesn't get a gift because it's going to come up a couple times and he's going to be like, yeah, I deserve it. Like, I deserve not to have a gift because, you know, he's going to grow. But at the same time, it's like, wow, they get all these cool, they got all these cool toys and he's just left out. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what you get when you literally sell out your siblings to be murdered by a queen. But karma about that. That's a different, that's not, that's not a Christian philosophy, though it's not described as karma. Karma is obviously Buddhist, right? It's Buddhist. I, I'm not sure, but I know, it's yeah. It's either Buddhist it's not, or Hindu or some Eastern philosophy. Well, yeah. Okay. So, but about that scene with Santa, Santa tells Susan and Lucy not to join in the battle because battles are ugly when women fight, which I never imagined Santa Claus being so sexist, <laughs> but I guess this is what Charles, like, was talking about in the last episode, about, like, there being that mix of, like, sexism mixed in. But for me, I was just like, if he doesn't want them to fight, why would he give them weapons as their gifts? Like, why wouldn't he give them, like, I don't know, like a sewing machine? I don't know, like, just something that, like, a, or, a, or a pan to cook, because, you know, women belong in the kitchen. Like, why would he give them weapons? Like, that just is idiotic at that point. Like... It just seems like he contradicted himself in the same moment. He's like, oh, here's a bow and arrow. Here's a knife. Oh, but don't join the battle because, like, women aren't supposed to be a part of it. Yeah, I wrote down that line, too. And it's very much like, it's not like women suck. It's very, like, 18th century of, like, this is how ladies should behave. Like, Yeah, it's like women don't belong in these specific places and like by obviously by our standards we would accurately consider that misogynistic like it's yeah it's yeah i mean this it this really dates the series i mean maybe c.s lewis really did think that a woman's place was in the house like very possible that he Which believed it wasn't that. even that bad because it was kind of like a passing comment like Again, as a kid, too, you could think, I mean, I wasn't sure if he was being sarcastic or not, but I was like, Santa Claus having sarcasm? <laughs> no, like, it it's very like, much uh, like... But it was straightforward. Yeah. Again, I'm, I don't know that much about C.S. Lewis. Like, I know he was a professor, so maybe he was, like, somewhat on the cutting edge, but I find that hard to believe. He literally was the UK in the 1950s. But, I, again... Well, he couldn't have been... He couldn't have been that sexist because he still included female characters who, like, had leading roles. Totally. Like, it's, again, I don't, it's probably, like, again, I don't know. I was not there in the 50s. I'm assuming that for, like, his peers, he was probably, like, pretty... Progressive. Revolutionary. Like, pretty progressive relative to them. But, like, of course, by our standards, like, we'd be like, 
that's like the kind of line you don't need. Like you literally could have just like given them the weapons and said, I have a different plan for you. Like we, but he like, had to like, he, he, cause you know, he's just taking baby steps. You know, he's like, I'm giving you the weapons, but I still got to let you know that like, that's not really your place. But you know, we're getting to the point where we'll give you the weapons just in case. And now we're at the point where we just like, are like, let's give teachers assault rifles. Cause that's a good way to, you know, run schools. <sighs> Sorry, I was just thinking about that because, you know, the majority of teachers in the United States are women, and we're, you know, we're talking about giving women weapons. Anyway, let's move on. You'll also, what's also funny about this scene is that, like, Susan, as you'll see, is really, really good with a bow. Like, I'm like, I would let her fight because one, you gave her a magic bow that can't miss. And two, she's really talented as a like as an archer. And I'm like, I get it. Lucy is a tiny little girl, especially like I just always imagine Lucy as like because I'm one of four siblings, it's like my little brother. I mean, obviously, like my little brother is not a girl, <laughs> but like like just like a little person running around, you know, following. And so I like can't imagine like you know, Lucy keeping up with them in a battle. But I'm like, Susan is basically, like, a medieval sharpshooter. Like, she's the kind of person you want in a battle. <laughs> you just said that, and that makes sense now why you like Edmund is so much as well, because you would be Edmund in a story based on your siblings, because you're the third child. You're so right. I would be Edmund. I'd be the traitor. I would be Judas. <laughs> that would absolutely match your character. <laughs> what? Anyway... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Charles is a goody two-shoes. He would never do anything wrong. <laughs> anyway, back to the story. Susan did not prove that she is this sharp shooter because she gets attacked by the white witch's wolf. And Susan, like, climbs up a tree. And then Peter's like, she's going to faint. Like, why was she going to faint? I guess, again, this is where the sexism is mixed in. Like, she has a bow and arrow, so she easily could have defended herself if she's some sharpshooter and is brave. But, you know, I guess that, like, feminine energy in her was like, nope, I'm going to faint from my fear. But a more important question after this, Peter kills the wolf, and then Aslan knights peter with his sword which how the heck did he do that if he has no opposable thumbs and on top of that on page 157 there is an illustration of aslan and the witch talking and aslan is standing up on his hind legs with his front paws clasped behind his back like a person so like what the heck are we reading like who is this line like he's a man lion like he has opposable thumbs and can hold on to swords like with enough, like, dexterity to, like, not chop Peter's head off as he, like, places the sword on him and he, like, can walk around like a normal person? Yeah, it's fantasy. It's fantasy. Yeah, I did. It was funny that, like, Susan's gonna faint. I was like, I guess women just get hysterical. That's all I could think of. <laughs> yeah, because Peter's like, oh, she's gonna faint. She's in the tree and she's about to pass out. And I was like, she's gonna faint? Yeah. That seems like a little extreme. And it's true. Aslan is constantly picking things up, which he absolutely should not be able to do. And I'm pretty sure in the movie they rectify that. I'm pretty sure in the movie he doesn't, like, pick things up. No. Well, that's why I was, like, shocked to see the illustration and, like, <laughs> read all these things. Because I'm, like, based off the image that I'm going off of from the movie, Aslan is, like, a normal lion. Like, he just can talk. But, like, he can't do any, like, human things. Like, he walks around on four legs. Like, he would be, like... 
you know, he would tell somebody else to, like, knight Peter. Like, he wouldn't be able to do it himself. And also, you know, they had to change that because I'm not even kidding. Charles, if <laughs> if he would have stood up in the movie, people would have been like, what? Because, again, it's like your brain, your brain can only, like, accept so much. And that would have been too ridiculous. Like, I wouldn't have been able to take it seriously. I, I can barely, that's why, just like how I said in the last book, in The Magician's Nephew, of, like, if they would have made that into a movie and, like, showed Aslan singing as, like, the world is coming to life for, like, an hour, no. Like, I'm sorry. That's just not believable. At that I think point, he, I think movie, it's one thing to have it in a book. Yeah. It's one thing to have it in a book where, like, you're imagining it for yourself, but to actually see it, I think that it's that... They talk about that, like, line of, like, amazement and, like, being disturbed. Like, again, when I reference the Lion King, like, CGI live action, I think a lot of reasons why people didn't like it is because it looked so realistic. But our brains are telling us that we know animals can't talk and sing, but we can see it right in front of us. And it looks so real, so it, like, makes you uncomfortable because you're, like, questioning reality. So that is why, like, that would just never work. Well, also that one was just so weird because, like, sometimes the lion's mouths would, like, move as if they were speaking like a human. And sometimes they wouldn't. So sometimes you'd be like, are they trying to, like, make, like, letter sounds with a lion's face? Because we move way too much. Like, lions can't move as yeah. fast as we can. The way That's why we can speak. Like, their their growls all sound like one or two sounds because they don't have the dexterity in their jaw. Jaw, yeah, and the tongue. And like sometimes it. they wouldn't animate the faces at all, and so there would just be like noise. Like they're just like you just are looking like at an animated lion. Which like if they, <laughs> that would have been better control. if they were just like all telepathic, like they were just communicating by minds. I feel like that would have been more believable. And then Beyonce starts singing. It was like we got like omniscient lions, and then all of a sudden Beyonce is singing in the background. <laughs> Yeah, also, I think in the movie, Aslan puts his paw on his shoulder. I could be wrong, but that's more Which, realistic. Which, that seems way more realistic. Again, it's like, you you can watch that and be like, okay, I've already accepted that this is a talking lion who represents God. And he put his paw. That makes sense for, like, what we would expect of a lion to do if there existed this nice lion. But, like, if the lion stood up and started talking, like, with his hands behind his back, and he's holding swords now, like, no. I would be like, what's going on? Also, because if it's not animated, it's a live action. Because that's the difference. When it's animated, it's like a cartoon. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Madagascar. In that, like, they stand up on their hind legs and stuff. But, like, it's clearly not real. But to have in a live action where you have, like, a CGI lion that's supposed to look really realistic, I feel like, again, it's the line of, it would just be disturbing to watch. Yeah. So, also, we find, we meet Aslan again in this book, and I just, this feels like a, not a plot hole, but, like, kind of a plot hole. Like, he swoops in and solves all the problems, and it's like, you waited a thousand years to do that, like, to liberate Narnia. Maybe she's only been ruling for a hundred years, but either way, yeah, it's a hundred years of winter, whatever. But, like, Clearly, he had the capacity to bring children to Narnia if he needs them. And clearly, like, he has the capacity to defeat the witch. So why are we waiting? Like, I mean, isn't that, like, the whole premise of, like, Christianity that we're all waiting for, like, Jesus to come back and save us? I guess that's true. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, again, no matter what your beliefs are, like, if this is supposed to be based off of Christianity, like, that's literally what Christianity basically, like, states, right? Yes, in one reading of it, like, yeah, right now, we're literally just waiting for the second coming. 
we're waiting for the second coming. So yes, it, if Jesus came today, we would be saying the same thing. You know, why did it take you this long to come back? You know, or you would be saying that. Like, or people who would question it would be like, why did it take you so long? You mean like you literally gave us coronavirus? Like, like all the, because yeah, if you think of all the bad things that have happened in the world over the past thousands of years or whatever, it would be like the same idea as this. So to me, I wouldn't have questioned it because if, again, if this is supposed to be Christian imagery, it makes sense with what Christianity represents or one version of it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, this is actually like the perfect segue to probably the most important and most recognizable Christian image in probably the whole trilo- trilogy book series. Yes, which at this point was like, for me, I was like, I don't know how anyone could read this and not see the parallels like with the Bible and like the Christian stories. Like, I don't know how you could deny that, which I guess, again, if you're a child and you're not familiar with it, obviously, then I would understand why you wouldn't make that connection. But Aslan literally dies for Edmund's sins. Like literally, he gets like put to death. Which is what Jesus does. For Edmund. Jesus dies Which is for literally what Jesus our does. sins. Sins, like. Yeah, so, and this is like, you know, Aslan. So we, as good Christians, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit can be used interchangeably because they're all one, you know, they're trinity. Aslan is frequently referred to as the son of the emperor across the sea. We never meet the emperor across the sea. I always assumed yeah. it was a human. And I was like, it's a human with a lion son. But it doesn't really matter. Well, yeah, I was also going to say, because they kept saying that. So, like, is the emperor across the sea? I mean, I know you're saying, like, the Trinity. Like, but is, because is Aslan supposed to be Jesus? In, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is, again, where it's, like, more of, like, a metaphor. Because, yes, in this case, Aslan yeah. is more like Jesus. Because he's come down this moment. to save Narnia. And he has a life taken instead of Edmund's. And... Yes, so like in this context, Aslan is more like a Jesus figure, and Emperor across the sea would be more like God. But again, they're all God. Pardon? All interchangeable. The Trinity. They're all the same. Yes. So it. I think for um, our sake, we'll probably refer to Aslan as the God metaphor for the rest of the series. But this is like obviously, in this case, he would be resuming the Jesus role. And this is something that, like, I probably never paid attention to during the witch scenes. So, you know, we have, like, the good guys, they're running with the beavers, and we have the bad guys running with the witch. And she has him, Edmund, tied up, and she's literally about to slit his throat. Like, she's like, hmm, if I kill him now, then there won't be four kings and queens, so then I get to keep ruling. So I'm going to kill him now. And, like, I know that, like, she's open to killing him, but, like, I guess maybe I just, like, skipped it mentally, but, like... I never realized that she was, like, minutes away from, like, actually killing Edmund before the spies come and, like, capture him. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what was happening. Yeah, she's literally like, let's tie him up. Let's get his neck ready. And I'm like, oh, my God. But I was I was just wondering, too, with the White Witch, because I think you said in the last episode about how she's not necessarily representing any specific character, like, from the Bible. Like, she's not supposed to be, like, Satan. I mean, maybe she is. I'm, I'm not an expert on theology. But either way, I just think it's interesting, though, that he chose, of course, to have the, like, the villain be a female. There's going to be more female villains down the line. Because you know what I mean? Like, why, I mean, obviously, like, witches and stuff is, like, that's a common thing that, like, to villainize women. But I just think it's interesting 
They're like, okay, you have Aslan, who's like a man lion, I guess. A, a Which, by theological lion, standards, because that in the twenty first century, is but that's also not what we consider now. But isn't? But Satan is also a man. Yes. Again, it's. I think that you're getting a little too hung up in the Christian aspect of it. It's not a retelling of the Bible. It's metaphors. No, I know that. I'm just. I was just commenting on. You know, to me, that is like. It's interesting that, of course, he made the villain. A woman. Yeah. Well, so there's not really an antagonist. Oh, there are antagonists in the next book. They're men. Then they're men as antagonists for the next few books. Then there will be another female antagonist. And then there'll be, there'll be more men antagonists down the line. So. I mean, too, like, I mean, when they talked about in the last book, like, her eating... The, the apple, like the forbidden fruit, maybe that's supposed to like reference Eve. Well, Eve, like, so I don't know. I just, but I was just thinking about that, that I'm like, but also again, I, I'm only judging based off of this book and the previous book. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that you can give yourself a little mental separation between the Bible and the story because it's not like Bible recast version. Like, it's <laughs> recast as a lot. It's lion. much more about like, Christian themes and like the idea of like giving yourself up for others unconditionally, you know, it's not like you need to become a lion and like get knifed. No, no, I know that. I I was just commenting on that the villain is a woman. I just wanted to point that out. And I'm curious if that would be a continuous. I just wonder if that'd be a continuous theme, which if you're saying it's not, then it really doesn't matter. But I don't know that from my perspective right now in this moment. Well, we'll see. I mean, do you think it's particularly misogynistic to have the villain be a woman? I'm, I'm not asking in a critical sense. I'm asking, like, as a woman, how do you feel about that? No, not in the sense of... I'm just interested, like, intellectually. I don't think that it's just on its own misogynistic, but I'm thinking of if this is... You're saying Christian themes, and if through the whole series the only villains are women, yes, I would identify that as misogynistic. Fair enough. But we're not there yet. I just was wanting to state the fact that, oh, so far, you know, the first two books, the villain is a woman, which that's why I'd asked you before, is she supposed to represent, like, the devil, which you're saying that that's not what you think it is, which in the next books, if there are different villains who are not women, then then, no, that's not a continuing through the series. Sure. That was why I was just trying to recognize if, like, oh, could this be something that's sexist? Well, you can keep an eye on it just but in case. That's all. Yeah. I'll track it, like Charles and likes to say, which we know I'm not going to. I'm going to forget. Charles is going to have to remember. Aslan sacrificed himself. The girls watch and cry. And then he's reborn because he was innocent. Yes, which I remembered this from the movie so like i was like not affected at all while i was reading this i knew exactly what was going to happen like as soon as he was like walking and they're like where are you going like i remember this distinctly from the movie i mean it's kind of traumatizing honestly like to watch the scene is dark in the movie yeah i feel like again that's like one of the scenes like are we sure this is for kids (laughs) but um Aslan did not have to wait three days to wake up, but I guess like Charles is saying, this is not a specific retelling, so, you know, the details don't matter as much. Okay. All that matters is if that you he, If you read an he, Easter homily, if you, if you read The Passion of Christ, any one of them, and you come away from it and you're like, you know what the most important thing is? 
resurrection takes three days. I'm like, you missed the detail. No, I was just, I was just, because when I was reading it in my head, I was like, oh, I know this is going to happen. Like, I didn't remember. And I was like, is he going to have to wait three days to wake up? Like, what is he going to fill the story with those three days? And then I was like, oh no, it's the next morning. Like that makes sense for the plot. I was just, I was just in the moment. I was like, are like, is he going to make Aslan wait three days to come back alive? Because, like, that doesn't make sense for the story. But he didn't. Yeah, it's totally fine. I'm just like, that. but that would be actually really funny if, like, you know, you took someone to Easter Mass, they hear the Passion of Christ, and they walk out, and, like, they're like, yeah. The biggest whoop was that he had to wait three days to be resurrected. Like, what were you doing for 72 hours? Like, why couldn't it be the next <laughs> morning? Was like, that would, if that's what you got from the, like, from that, that would be hysterical. Like, Anyway, like you said, he's a metaphor. So then he awakens the statues. They join the battle. He kills the witch. Like, it was so easy. Not difficult at all. He could have just gotten rid of her at the beginning of the world when she came in. But no. He has to wait until the second coming. Yep. Which is, I guess, when the humans come. Well, there's some human superiority against animals vibes. This is one thing that I want to say about the battle. Edmund is a good strategist by breaking her wand. Like, no one else thought to do that. The way that she, like, incapacitates people, she frees them into stone. And no one else was like, you know what? If we took that away, she'd just be a sword fighter. Except Edmund, which is why I love Edmund. And that's why Charles relates to Edmund, because he'd be like, yep, I'm always the smartest in the room, thinking of the different, different strategies that no one can think of. Well, they become kings and queens, and then many years later, they come through the wardrobe... And it's been like 15 years approximately that they've been ruling Narnia and no time has passed. And this is something that I never liked as a child when I read this. I still don't like it now. I really don't like the the no time passes in Narnia rule because, well, time runs differently in Narnia. And they'll say this a hundred times. They'll be like, I think time runs differently in Narnia because like Professor Kirk, he's probably like 60 now and he was like 10 in the first book. But there's been a thousand years of Narnian history mm-hmm. between. And then they are in Narnia for 15 years and no time passes at all. And then the next time we meet the Pevensey children, well, you'll see. I'm not good. But point is, they run on different timelines. And I would hate that because if I was a child and then I became a king and I ruled for 15 years, I sure as hell would not want to go back and have to be a child again, go back to middle school. <laughs> Yeah, also I'm just saying, because, like, the first time Lucy goes in, let's say she's in there for, like, an hour. She comes in, no time passes. Then when her and Edmund go in, maybe they're gone for a few hours. Still no time passes. Then they're gone for 15 years, and still no time has passed. Like, to me, that's where it's, like, it's completely illogical. Like, there's no rules. Like, any amount of time could pass in Narnia, and it could still mean not even a second has passed in, like, our world. Well, you're going to see... Next time, I guess I can preview this, but, like, since you've seen Caspian and it's not a big surprise, they're going to figure this out in, like, the first chapter. But the next time they get back into Narnia, it will have been, I believe, a year in their life. And it'll have been a thousand years in Narnia. And it's, like... But what I'm saying, so, like, then at that point, like, you just said, then, for Diggory slash Professor Kirk, how, you know, it's been 50 years for him, but it's only been a thousand. So, like, there is no... It's not consistent. There's no ratio. Yeah, there's no consistent ratio, which to me, like, makes no sense. Like. Honestly, it's a little sloppy. It I is. Think. To me, that's sloppy. Like, I understand for the story, like, he 
maybe he just wanted to have the freedom to just do whatever he wanted. But as far as like, it would make sense if it was like, okay, for every year of the real world, a thousand years passes in Narnia. So then you're like, okay, I have like a ratio I can estimate through like. Yeah, because then you could say 15. But like the fact is no matter what, when they go out no time passes, like that's basically then how you could become immortal. You just go live in Narnia until you're old and then you start back over. You wait a year, then you go like you could just live forever. Yeah, it's. I mean, I guess, like you said, you can't choose to go in Narnia, so that might not necessarily work. But, yeah, it's, I, like, particularly, I'm, like, I, becoming an adult and then becoming a king and then you have to go back to middle school, that would kill me. That would break me. And then you, like, have to go back to school and you have to be, like, dealing with all these people and, like. Yep, they would need therapy for <laughs> they sure. They would need so much therapy. And then, like you said, Professor Kirk says that they will get back into Narnia, but not when they try too. Like, they can't decide to go to Narnia. Which is also weird because he also kind of makes it seem like they can't get back into Narmi- Narmia. They can't get back into Narnia through the wardrobe anymore. Yeah, which is true. No one is going to get back in through Narnia. And that's, besides the timeline, I think is one of the biggest, like, kind of like, I actually don't like this in The Magician's Nephew. So I kind of alluded to this. But in the end of The Magician's Nephew, it says something like, the tree... The wood becomes the wardrobe, and the wardrobe remembers the magic of Narnia. And I don't like that. Be- so it's like a connection. Which makes sense if that was consistent throughout the whole series. But you'll see it's not like that. Aslan kind of controls, like Aslan pulls them in, or they get pulled into Narnia when it's needed in Narnia, not like by like rules of magic. Like if you just read this book and The Magician's Nephew... You would think, okay, well, you have the magic dust and the magic rings, and then the tree is a magic portal. Like, and that would be like, you kind of relate those. But I believe in the rest of the series, at no point do they need to be connected to that original magic lineage to get into Narnia. Yeah, that makes no sense. Because then at that point, like, then... And so that... A portal... Don't have the lineage at all. just open anywhere. So yeah, I can understand why you'd be frustrated with... In the last book, them even saying that. I mean... Like, I want you to, when you read it, let me know how you feel about it. But, like, it really doesn't make sense because it's not important. Like, no one else goes through the wardrobe. I guess you could say that, like, I mean, I don't know how the other books are going to go because I know you said there's, like, we're going to follow different characters. Like, in the next book, it's different characters. But maybe it's they said that because for the wardrobe, that was, like, the first time the, like, important people, like the Pevensey children, went into Narnia. So they kind of had to stumble into Narnia in order to get there. And now that they've been there, now the magic is, like, they can call them, or, like, Aslan can call them in when he needs them from anywhere. You know? Well, you'll see, and then you'll tell me what you think. Okay. So, thoughts so far as we finish this book? I mean, like I said at the beginning, I do think, like, at this point, like, it did, yeah, it just felt a little childish, which I do think for this book, like, I know we had said before, Charles, like, you're going to enjoy this one so much more because I've seen the movie. I actually think seeing the movie made this one less enjoyable because I just, I knew it was going to happen. Whereas now for the rest of the series, I have no idea. Because even Prince Caspian, I saw that movie and, like, maybe I'll have some, like, moments of flashbacks and remembering. But, like, I really don't remember the plot of that one at all. So I think for most of the books going forward, it is going to actually be me consuming the story for the first time. So I am excited for that because maybe there's a chance I'll enjoy it a little bit more. But yeah, we'll just see. I mean, 
I'm not really looking forward to all the sexism and racism, but you know, that's what we're here to comment on. We're unpacking the 20th century standards in the 21st century. Look at us. Yeah. So we'll see. Like I said, at this point, I'm definitely not like, I don't dislike the series. Like this is not how I felt about Inkheart or Divergent. Like I don't hate it. I just right now I'm like a little bit indifferent, disinterested, but I am hopeful for like the next books. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, I'm really enjoying it because of the nostalgia, but I will. Well, like I will, you said, you've read it 15 times. But I will. So obviously you must like it. Also, I can read I one hope. book in a day. Like I literally read this book in a day. And I did other I reading as well the same day. Like it's, I had to put it down. But it's so easy for me to like breeze through them. Like I read, I reread these during like the initial bout of COVID in 2020. And I read two books a day. Like it did, it's not hard for me to breeze through these. So that's kind of why 15 is not that unrealistic for me. But I definitely agree. Like every time I read it, I'm like, oh, I'm further away from the targeted group for this series. Well, good for you. So, but I think that can wrap it up. I think that's enough. Yes. So next week we are reading book three, The Horse and His Boy. So if you read along with us, go ahead and read the whole book for next week. This one actually takes place during book two. It's going to take place while Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are the kings and queens. And I think it takes place like roughly a year before they head back to our world. This one definitely starts introducing that racism, if I remember correctly, which will be fun, you know, love dealing with that. I do think it's got one of the more interesting stories, though, like, again, setting aside the racism, which not saying we can just set racism aside, but like, the plot in a vacuum, I think, is probably one of the more interesting ones. And I think that you'll like the characters in this one better, Asia. Maybe. Also because the characters are a little older in this one. Maybe then. But we definitely are going to take note of the, uh, let's just say, not polite portrayals of people of color <laughs> that we're definitely going to have in this book. And we're going to be cognizant of that. Because it's going to be there. If you have predictions, theories, questions, concerns, you want to talk about any of this with us, remember you can always reach out to us on the Nerd Party website. Just go to nerdparty.com slash contact. You click on our cute little throwback paperback icon. That'll send us an email. You can also reach the network at large on Twitter, on Door Nerd Party, or Instagram at the Nerd Party, or Facebook.com slash the Nerd Party. And to find me, I'm at Seashells on Instagram. And I'm at Asia.Bonia on Instagram and TikTok. If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. And as always, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe button. Have a good one. We will see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.